it's really kind of interesting that here I'm sitting here thinking about the lineage and the passing on of faith, and that's really where we're going to be today. We're going to be talking about Jesus' bloodlines and the lineage that He comes from. There's something about it in America. We love the idea of family ancestry. We love the idea of knowing where we come from. Sometimes it's just about the history of it, just wanting to know you know, the events that have transpired in our family. Sometimes it's about feeling disconnected and without knowing where we come from and knowing those who came before us, we feel disconnected, incomplete in some way. And sometimes finding this information out is helpful and sometimes it's not at all. Sometimes it's just a good story to tell. For example, I have a story that's relayed by my grandmother on my father's side. My, my dad's mom tells this story of, of my grandfather's ancestors being the first to drop an aerial bomb on the United States on, the, on U.S. soil. Shelton's, that's my folks, right? Like my people have that claim to fame. Well, I don't know that's one I want, but it's a story we tell, right? I mean, it's, so the Shelton gang, the Shelton brothers gang, was they were a notorious gang. The Saturday Evening Post called them the bloodiest American gang. Like they were, they were horrific criminals. They were, they were known for uh, bootlegging and gambling, and they ran Southern Illinois. They were a mafia of sorts. They were just probably very similar to a bunch of hillbillies that just didn't care to shoot other people and make a name. You know, they they were just violent folks, and so they were facing off against another gang that was competing for territory, competing against them. And they had the bright idea to enlist a guy who could fly. And they get in his old biplane, or one of the members of their gang gets in this guy's biplane and drops three bombs. It was dynamite strapped to or tied to bottles of nitroglycerin. Nobody, no, only, well, only one of them blew up. And that one missed its target, so it didn't work. I mean... It, it's not like it's, it's more like, it, I don't know if you remember, remember the story of the apple dumpling. It was more of a failure. It was like the apple dumpling gang kind of thing. It was, it's really a comedy of errors, but that's a story we tell. And the thing is, I don't even know for certain if they're really related to us, you know, because it could just be their Sheltons. Like, there's a lot of people that day, right? I mean, I don't think I'm related to Blake Shelton, but that's his name. I wish I was. If I was, I'd be calling him up and asking for a donation. I don't. But the thing is, even if I was, I don't know that it would make a difference for me, right? I don't think it would mean much for me other than just a story to tell at parties. You know, it's not like I'm going to be telling that story to get into fancy restaurants and be moved to the front of the line. You know, it just doesn't work that way. The truth is, I, I don't know much about my ancestry. If I wanted to know, this is huge business. I could go and pay somebody to help me find out. I mean, it's, it's said that this, that this search for family ancestry, that this family ancestry uh, 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 research is, to be, is, is like the second largest, most popular hobby in the United States. I don't, that's what they say. Uh, Ancestry.com, which is a huge repository for this information, Ancestry.com was sold October 22nd, 2012 for $1.6 billion. It's a website for crying out loud. $1.6 billion. 
dollars. And it's always been profitable since its inception. It's always been profitable. People want to know where they come from. We have this obsession with where we come from, with our, with our ancestry. It's striking to me that as I think about that, it's striking to me that as Christians, when we come to places in the Scripture that speak of ancestry and lineage, it's like the place where it's dry and dull. I'm with you. Like I come to those begats in the Old Testament, it's like eyes gloss over, I'm struggling staying awake in my Bible reading. And even today, as we deal with this passage in Luke chapter 3, thinking of Jesus' bloodlines, it's like, what are you going to talk about? I mean, it just tells us His history. But there's a lesson we've learned already, I think, in, in Luke. I, I think the, the, the reality is Luke didn't share any of this for no reason. Right, it was, it, Luke was convinced, I believe Luke was convinced that knowing Jesus' bloodlines, that knowing Jesus' ancestry was essential for us. And so as he is coming to this place where he's about to transition from who Jesus was, building out Jesus' identity, before he moves on to Jesus' ministry, he gives us one final piece of identification. One final piece of evidence to help us know who Jesus is. Today, I, I, I hope it would be interesting to you. I hope that you will be intrigued. As intrigued, there's a television show, TLC has a television show called Who Do You Think You Are? And I, I watched a show a couple days ago just to kind of get a feel for what it was about, so that I, as I was going to mention it this morning, and I found myself intrigued. I found myself Kind of surprised that I was drawn into the story of Brian Cranston, you know, the guy from Breaking Bad. I was intrigued by his ancestry. I, I, I hope you're that intrigued, but more than that, I hope you become convinced because ultimately that's exactly what Luke set out to do for Theophilus and by extension us. That you become convinced that Jesus is the Christ who's come to save us. So let's read. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. We're going to read verses 21 through 38. I'll just go ahead and tell you now. I'm not going to read all the, all the names. I could impress you with my oratory skills and the practice I've got in, in, naming, in, in saying these things, but I'd be wrong probably, and so you'd laugh at me, and I don't really want that. I'd rather you laugh with me than at me, so I'm not going to do that. But, but we will hit some major marks, some major points of this passage. So let's just begin reading Luke chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Uh, let's just stop. Take just a break. Just a, just a second. Get our, get our bearings. These two verses, they serve as a pivot point for Luke. They serve as this moment where, where John the Baptist has, has been doing ministry and, and Luke has been proving Jesus' identity from chapter 1 on. Now he comes and he highlights John the Baptist and he's about to pivot to the point where Jesus is going to come on the scene. He's going to spend the rest of his, the rest of his gospel account, the rest of his gospel record, he's going to spend it talking about what Jesus is doing. 
Not just about who Jesus is, but he's going to record for us, or he's going to recount for us. Story after story after story showing us God's power through his son, Jesus. And, And these two verses are a pivotal moment. I mean, just think about this. Think about where it falls. So the verses before it are all about who John the Baptist or, or John the Baptist ministry. They're all about his work. If you were here last week, you'll remember the verses, they all pointed to him. They, they talked about his call to repentance. And so as we studied John the Baptist last week, I, 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 I gave you a call to repentance. I John the Baptist did you. Like I came to you getting in your face and calling you to repent just in the same way that he did for, for the people that he was going to. That recognizing that, that their connection, that their, that, their, that their life was not based on their lineage, but on their repentance. And the same holds true for us. But even these verses, even this passage that, that focuses so heavily on John the Baptist is not about John the Baptist. I mean, if you remember, the, the people affirmed him as a prophet. They affirmed him as one sent from God. So he's speaking on God's behalf and they're coming to him by the thousands and they're saying, baptize us. We repent, baptize us. And, and, and that's happening. The, 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 the leaders of the day are scared to do anything about John the Baptist because they recognize that he is a man of God. So the affirmation of his status as a prophet is certain. Until this one fateful moment where John the Baptist is asked, are you the Christ? And John's like, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. You see, John knew his role. He knew that he wasn't to be the Redeemer. He knew that he wasn't to be the Christ. He knew he wasn't supposed to be the Savior. He was supposed to be the one going before the Savior. John knew his place. He knew his role. And so that's exactly what he did. John's existence only makes sense because of these two verses. Because John, until this moment that Jesus comes to get baptized, John has no idea who who the man he's waiting for is, who the man he's supposed to be pointing to is. He has no clue. So Jesus comes down. Matthew shares this with us. Jesus comes down. And he's coming to John the Baptist to get baptized. And John says to him, he's like, I shouldn't be baptizing you. (laughs) And Jesus is, I I don't think he knew in that moment exactly who Jesus was. I think in that moment, he had an understanding that Jesus was even more righteous than he. I think he became convinced in what happens after the, the baptism. In fact, it's, it's Luke's whole point here. Luke wasn't focused on the baptism and why Jesus got baptized. Luke had no concern with what happened between John and Jesus. His whole concern in sharing these two verses was what happened as a result of the baptism. John has been preparing, calling the people to turn back to God, fulfilling the prophecies that he he was called to fulfill, that that God had prepared for him to fulfill. He was the forerunner of Christ, and, and Christ comes to him, and he baptizes Christ. He puts him in the water, brings him back up. The, the Jesus, and Luke tells us, he's the only one that calls us out, Luke tells us Jesus is praying, and the sky, the heavens open. 
Now, I don't know what this looks like. I don't know exactly how to imagine this. But in some way, I just imagine this, this great beam of light. And I don't know if that's even right or not, but just trying to picture it. The, the heavens open and the Spirit descends in bodily form like a dove, rests on Jesus. John the Baptist is witnessing it. And, and, a, and a voice speaks from heaven. This is my Son. You are my Son. I am pleased with you. This is vital. This is is massive because in this moment, in these two verses, Luke summarizes for us very, uh, very necessary credentials for Jesus Christ. Jesus was identified as the Christ, as the one that Israel had been waiting for. Jesus is identified as the Christ by God's prophet, by God's spirit, and by God's own voice. If you think about this, this is distinct. This is a distinct moment in in all of the evidence that that Luke has portrayed for us to this point. Luke has been telling stories that could potentially just be legend. Like of angels showing up in the temple and angels appearing to virgins and shepherds seeing angels in the field and going and seeing a baby. These these things could, could become legend. But here, God takes a moment to step into our story in front of what's probably thousands of people. Some people think that this was a private moment. Some people think it was, it, it was out in the open for everybody to see. We really don't know today, but, but Luke records it as if it's these, these pressing credentials for the Christ. Think of it like this. When we go out and get a job today, we've got to prove our identity, right? I mean, it's an I-9 form. We've got to fill out an I-9 form. We've got to have the right types of identification. If you've got row A, you just need one type of identification. If you, if you don't have row A, you've got to have row B and C. I don't know you guys remember these things. You've got to have row B and C in one of each. This is, this is Jesus' I-9 form, if you will. He is proving to us. He is showing us that that Jesus is who He is going to claim to be. What Jesus is going to do is is going to be the fulfillment of God's plans for Him. This sets Jesus apart from every other Messiah claiming or claim claim to the Messiah uh, that's existed to that point and that would come after Him. It was a common thing. Israel had plenty of people coming along saying they were the Messiah. They had plenty of Jewish people, Jewish men would raise up and say, I'm the one, I'm the one sent by God. But no one had God's prophet, the forerunner. No one had God's spirit coming on them in bodily form. And no one had God's voice coming down from heaven making the claim for them. This is huge. This is essential. This sets him apart from every other fake Messiah. Luke, not one to be just, hey, though, that's enough, but giving us a thorough and, and, and orderly record goes on. And he, he goes on and he gives us something that's no longer something that can just pass into history as a legend, which even this moment could have. But he gives us something that's written. A written record 
that would have been seen as substantial, that would have been received as good evidence. He gives us the genealogy of Christ. He shows us from whom Christ came, thereby giving Christ, Jesus Christ, one more piece of evidence. But by just giving Theophilus one more reason to be certain that Jesus truly was the Christ come to save us. And so he goes on. Verse 23. Jesus, when He began His ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli or Heli, or maybe even Eli, depending on what manuscript you're reading from. We'll just stop right there because right there we have to deal with something. We get into verse 23 and we can't go any further without dealing with an issue that comes up. We could blow past it because we don't have Matthew right next to us, but there's a problem in the Gospel record. A difficulty we face. Luke was going to give a different genealogy for the Christ than Matthew. If this is given to us to be certain, we need to deal with it, right? We, we need to know, well, why can we be so certain? Well, let's just think of some of the differences. Matthew's Gospel, first and foremost, if you were to read Matthew's Gospel record, you'd see that the genealogy is listed in reverse order compared to Luke. Matthew starts in history and moves toward the present with Christ. Luke starts in the present and moves backwards, moves into history towards the, the, the creation. And that's not a big deal, is it? I mean, that's not a problem. Until you get to comparing names and suddenly you realize that Matthew has different names than Luke. And it's like, wait a minute. I'm no scientist. I'm no genealogist. But you would think that if it's Jesus' lineage, the Jesus' lineage would be the same. So Luke's list, it's, it's much broader. It includes more names. What we also know about Matthew's list is that he leaves out names. He skips several generations. He skips past people. And some people would say, oh, well, but he says they're the father of this, the father of that, so he must be wrong. And it's not wrong. It's just that's the way Jewish people would often do it. They would use the term father interchangeably with grandfather. And so to say that somebody's the father of somebody else doesn't mean could be great-great-grandfather for all we know. And he did it for his reasoning and his purpose as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. But, but Luke gives us a whole lot more names. That's not the only place differences occur. In fact, the greatest number of differences happen between Jesus' father and his connection to David. In fact, if you look at the, if you look at verse 23 again, I, th I think it's still probably up behind me. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, in parentheses, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Matthew says that Joseph's dad was Jacob. You see the problem? So, here's the thing. And I, I just want to be frank with you about it. We have no way of knowing 
exactly what gone, what's going on there. I.H. I. Marshall, one of the one of the renowned commentators on the book of Luke, says it is only right to admit that the problem caused by the existence of two genealogies is insoluble with the evident presently at our disposal. Like we look back into history now, we don't know. Here's what we do know. These two records stood side by side. Matthew was written sometime in, uh, in the 50s and 60s. Luke was written probably in the early 60s. These two records stood side by side with no contradiction. Everybody in that time knew what was going on and what Luke had done. There's no reason for us to assume today that one is wrong and one is right. If there had been an error, we can be certain that the early church would have pointed it out and written about it. They had no, they had no need to feel contradiction here. And so we stand, based on the, the, the history of interpretation and the history of the church, we stand in this place where we're like, well, we don't know exactly what it was, but there's certainly some possibilities. And I'll just share two of them with you this morning. One of those possibilities is that Matthew lists the legal line or the royal line, while Luke records the physical line. So Matthew, as he comes down from David, he goes through Solomon to Jacob, Joseph's father, and, and, and ends up at Joseph and then Jesus. And that's thought to be the royal line. Like, I mean, Solomon was the king, and so whoever was his son would be the king, and so on and so forth. And so there's this thought that that's the royal line. The, the legal line. And, and, and here's the thought. The, 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 the idea that happened inside of this is that we believe if this is what happened, Jew, excuse me, the Jewish culture had what was called levirate marriage. And so a, a, a person would step into a bloodline and, and assume a child's uh, uh, lineage so that their family name could live on. And so somewhere along the way, the, the royal line and the legal line, or the physical line of Joseph, merged. The, the royal line of David and the physical line of Joseph merged. That's, that's the thought. And so Matthew, being, uh, being focused on, on the Jewish readers, was worried about, or most concerned about the, the, the royal legal line. But Luke, being more concerned about those who were just out in the world, who who are Gentiles, was, was just giving us a straight-out physical, physical lineage of Joseph. That's probably the most popular view today, at least among theologians, people who study this. But probably the most popular view among just general students of the Bible and people sitting in church is that Matthew gives us Joseph's lineage and Luke gives us Mary's lineage. Now, here's the struggle with this idea, with this perspective, is that no one else in all of history has recorded a woman's lineage because in Jewish culture, your, your family was determined by your father. Your familial line is determined by your father, not your mother. But here's the answer to that. Jesus is pretty unique. I mean, He's born of a virgin. Right? He didn't have a blood father. And so the thought goes is that 
in this view, you would actually extend the parentheses out so that it would read, let's just look at it. So Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, and parentheses would open as was supposed of Joseph, and there the parentheses would close. So that whole statement right there would become parenthetical. It would belong to something outside of his general thought. And then in the Greek, the the very next two words, the son of Heli, the words the son are not in the Greek manuscript at all. So literally, if you were to read it without any interpretation, it might say when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. But, But taking that parenthetical statement out, being the son of Heli, or Heli, or however you want to say it. I told you I'm going to impress you with my oratory skills. I practice these names, and it's like I'm not going to get them right. So I gave up. If you know how to pronounce it, good for you. You'll probably get a gold star next to your name. But that, that's the thing is that so, so here that they're saying, well, wait a minute. That, that whole thing about Joseph is parenthetical. It's just Luke pointing something out for us, letting us know he was connected to Joseph, but he wasn't really Joseph's son. Either case, you're going to be standing with good theologians and you're going to be opposed by good, solid theologians in either case. It's just a reality. We are uncertain. So we look to history, we look to the church, and we see that the church has been in agreement that these two lines are not in contradiction to one another, but they share and and show us different details to one another. So wherever you fall, however you study it, however you believe it is, I just want to encourage you to see that these, these words, that, that, that what Luke is telling us is dependable. And it's always been considered dependable by the church. And as his book was, was picked apart, nitpicked by, by uh, archaeologists and, and those who have studied uh, it, looking for failures and flaws, he has been shown repeatedly to be a great historian. So we know we can be certain that what he gives us here is a dependable lineage. And it's either the physical or royal line. It is either the uh, line of Joseph or the line of Mary. We're not certain. But we know it's Jesus' line. Now, I do want to point something out, though, because there's a piece of, of, of this verse 23 that we need to be aware of, that we need to pay attention to, because why else would he pull out this idea that, that Joseph was his supposed father why why would he even point that out why would it be important to him because he's already been showing all the way through his his the, the beginning of his record it's already been being shown that jesus was not born of an earthly father jesus was adopted by his earthly father he had to be adopted by joseph he had to be accepted into joseph's family he had to be he joseph had to look at him as as a son who was his. He had to raise him and teach him and he had to accept him into his home as one who was his, just like any other father who might adopt a son would do. Even though there was no bloodline that, that connected them. There was, there, was no, there was no physical DNA connection. We don't know that, that there was some legal transaction that went on. But we know that Jesus was adopted by Joseph, that he was accepted into his home and he was raised as his own. And I love this. I think it's important. It's an irony that kind of comes out as you think about Jesus' lineage. Jesus was adopted by his earthly father so that we could be adopted by our heavenly father. Jesus knew what adoption was. Physically, he had experienced it. 
he had to look at Joseph and, and, and be received by Joseph. And he was. His father on earth had to adopt him and consider him as his son so that we could stand before God, the creator of all things, and be considered his children. And Luke goes on. He goes on and he ties Jesus in, then into every point of God's redemptive covenants. And these are the points that we're going to highlight most clearly. The verses are all there. But let's just skip down to verse 31. In verse 31, we see that, that uh, Jesus is connected to, to David, the son of Melah, the son of Minna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So Matthew brings us to David through Solomon. Luke brings us to David through, uh, through Nathan. And, and, and so there's this, there's that difference. But, but we see that in both cases, in either case, that, that they both bring us to David. Now, it, it could be that Mary, Mary, in fact, the Talmud, the, hist, uh, the history of the rabbinical teaching, the Talmud, it, it actually refers to Mary as the daughter of Heli, as it makes some reference to Jesus and what went on with him, and it refers to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as as Heli's daughter. So there's a reason why we would fall to or begin to think that this is Mary's lineage. We know that Mary was was a part of uh, the house of David. We know that she was related to to um, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they were priests. But they also there was a connection to the house of David. We, we, we know these, these things. So it's very possible that this was Mary's ancestry. I, I think that's probably where I lean. I'm probably about 80, 20. But here we are. So, so Luke gives us this place where he's connected to David, and it's important. Do you know why it's important? Because if Jesus was going to be the Christ, if Jesus was going to be the Messiah, he had to be connected to David because God had made a promise to David that had to be fulfilled in the Messiah. Jesus was born of the line of David to be God's chosen king forever. If Jesus had not fulfilled this aspect of his identity, if Jesus had not been connected to David, if Jesus hadn't been in the line of David, then Jesus couldn't be Messiah. He couldn't be. Because God had clearly said in 2 Samuel 7, 16, He had clearly said to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your th throne shall be established forever. There's going to be a king that comes and sits on your throne and will never leave it. Your kingdom will be different than any other kings. Every other man uh, has, 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 has built that, that's built an empire. Every other kingdom that's been established has at some point fallen, but yours will last forever. If Jesus hadn't been in the line of David, he couldn't be the Christ. He couldn't be the Messiah. He, he, he could not be our Savior. Luke shows us that he was connected to David, that he was in the line of David, and, and thereby showing us that he was God's chosen king forever. And he goes on. And he keeps going back into history. Verse 34, he points out, that Jesus was, was born in the line of Abraham. So he says in, in verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. You know why it's important that he's connected to Abraham? Because God had made a promise to Abraham. That Jesus was born to the line of Abraham in order to be the blessing God promised to all nations. 
If you know Abraham's story, you know Abraham wasn't the greatest of dudes. I mean, he had some problems, but he's the father of our faith. I mean, he trusted God and was counted to him as righteousness, but he was screwing things up all along the way. And we were reading it in this week in our Bible reading, my wife and I, and we got finished with one night of our reading as we were reading in Genesis. And I was like, what's the craziest thing you read today? What's the thing that sticks out? Abraham let his wife be treated as, a, as his sister. He didn't stand up and protect his wife two times. And she was brought into to somebody's house and they were gonna, like, they were, they were gonna take her. Like, they were, they were gonna have her. And Abraham's like, I'm, I, I just wanna live. I wanna get through this. So you act like my sister and deal with whatever comes because of it. But this is the guy that God looked at and his faith was counted as righteousness. And, and God says in Genesis 22 verse 18, in your offspring shall all the nations of earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Paul goes on to talk about it in Galatians chapter 3 where he talks about that he's talking about one offspring, not many, one. That this is the Christ. See, if Jesus hadn't been connected to Abraham, if Jesus hadn't belonged to the line of Abraham, if Jesus wasn't part of the Jewish lineage, the people that came from Abraham, he couldn't be our Messiah. So Luke showed us, Luke showed Theophilus that we could be certain that he and, and us by extension could be certain. But he goes on. He goes on and he gets to this place where he's connected to Noah. And here's what I think is really interesting about the line that goes from Noah back to Adam. It begins in, in verse 36. The line that, that, that gets to Noah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, I skipped it, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, sorry, verse 36. That's what happens when you're reading lineage, man. It's hard to deal with. He comes to Noah, and from Noah on back to Adam, we all share that. You realize that? You ever thought about that? We get all upset about race and, and ethnicity and, and all these all this lineage and talk about who's my family and who's not my family. And we're all family. From Noah all the way back to Adam, we have the same line. We share it. And we happen to be blessed enough to share it with Christ. With the God that came and put on flesh to dwell among us. But he makes it back to Adam in verse 38. He makes it back to Adam and he's, and this is, I mean, this is what it says. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You know why it's important that we recognize and that Luke calls out that Jesus was of the line of Adam? Of course he was. Every person is. But why is it important that we think about it? Why is it important that he calls it out? Because God had made a promise. Standing in front of, not standing, but being in front of Adam and Eve in their presence, God had made a promise. As a result of their sin, He made a promise. So Jesus was born in the line of Adam to be our victor in God's war. Genesis 3.15, God is he's, he's settling out the curse. He's speaking the curse that comes as a result of Adam and Eve's sin and the serpent's temptation into sin. And speaking to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Do you recognize that? Do you see that? This was pointed out to me just a few months back and it's been it's radically changed things for me. I will put enmity. So this is God's war. He's the one that's starting the war, right? He's the one that's stepping in 
to the conflict. Like you sinned against me, I, I could walk away, I could be done, but I'm stepping in. I'm getting involved. I'm starting this war. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and the reality is, is one is an annoyance. It bothers us. Like the snake like bites the heel, it would bother us. If it's poisonous, you know, we got to go to the doctor. He shall bruise your head as a death blow. Like he is going to win. He is God's victor in this war. And so it's important that Luke points this out because this is all that Jesus had come to do. And if Jesus had to be connected to these people, He had to be shown to be in this line so that He was the fulfillment. He was to be the fulfillment. He would fulfill every covenant, every promise that God had ever made in His line of redemption. And Jesus was born to be the Christ because no one but God Himself could redeem us from sin. He was God's choice for this. I think in part, Luke brings us all the way back, not just to Adam, but, but all the way back to God because we needed to see, we needed to be convinced that God was working in Jesus Christ, that He is the Christ. But I want to draw one more parallel. I want you to just consider again what happened at the, at the moment of Jesus' baptism. The heavens open. God speaks, the Spirit comes down. And I couldn't help but sense this parallel as I thought about what happened in the moment of creation. In fact, let me just read it to you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The earth was formed, it was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God's come down over the face of the waters. And God said, we see this speaking God. We see this present God. And now God is gonna, gonna go on from this point. He's gonna go on. He's gonna order, establish order. He's gonna create Adam and Eve and, and they would, they would ultimately sin and God would promise to them that everyone born of them would be sinners and they would suffer the consequences of their sin. And this curse laid out in Genesis chapter three that, that we kind of have already alluded to talks about enmity, the, the spiritual warfare that, that's going on around us, painful childbirth for women, marital strife among husbands and wives, cursed soil for the work that we go out to do. It, it's going to produce thorns and thistles as a result of that work. There's going to be a struggle to survive and there's going to be death. You're going to return to the dust. This is a promise that every one of us will endure. This is God bringing this curse, telling Adam what's going to happen as a result of his sin. But here in the irony of ironies, a plot twist so amazing that not, not even M. Night Shyamalan could, could see it coming. Right? He, he couldn't have wrote this one himself. God Himself, who is Creator, said, I'm going to come and put on flesh and dwell among them. And we see that happen in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything that was made. And that sounds great because God we know created. And if that's where John left off, then it would be, okay, well, what's your point? But here, John didn't finish. He's not finished. He says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who was present at the moment of creation, at the moment that Adam was molded from the dust and, and bent over and breathed into? Who was present but Jesus Himself? 
And in this moment, at the baptism, Jesus is being, be, being affirmed by the Father who was there creating with Him, who was being affirmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit who was there creating with Him. And now we know beyond all reasonable doubt by the process that Luke shows us in the genealogy that Jesus, the man, is God in flesh, born to be our victor, our King, our Blessed One, that we might be blessed. You see, this is vital for us. Because if Jesus isn't in this line, He is no one to be believed in. He is no one to be followed. He is no one to be trifled with. We just move on. But Jesus is the man. And Jesus is God. Who is our victor, our King, our blessed one. That we might be blessed. Believe it. Trust Him. And in trusting Him, you are brought into the line of Abraham. You will experience the blessing of an eternal King. And the one who crushes the serpent's head will be your victor. Trust Him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your intervention here. Grateful for Your love for us. So so full and complete that You didn't leave us to our own devices, but You stepped in. You didn't leave us alone, but You started a war that You would win for us. That You didn't leave us without real authority and enslaved to, to our selfishness, our flesh, our, our, the, the world around us and, the, and the, the rule of the prince of the power of the air. But You have set a king on a throne to rule in sovereignty forever. Thank You. Thank You, Jesus, that You can be our king. Thank You for coming that You might be our blessing. Thank You for fighting on our behalf. Would you draw us in to believe more deeply? To be as the, as the father who longed to see his daughter healed. And I believe, but help my unbelief. Help us believe. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.